You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to another fabulous episode of Dear Multi-Hyphenate. I'm your host, Michael Kushner. As always, thanks to the Broadway Podcast Network and thanks to you, the listeners. If you like these episodes, please comment, subscribe, rate, follow on Instagram, all that good stuff. On Instagram, I'm at Dear Multi-Hyphenate or at the Michael Kushner. And if you want to be on the, the podcast yourself, you can go to www.dearmultihyphenate.com and submit your story, your point of view, and hopefully you can join me on the podcast. I don't know if it's just me that needs to hear this, but um, if you are doing the damn thing out there, if you are waking up every day and doing one thing for your career and uh, working and creating in this environment um just know that you are seen you are heard i think right now it's it's just everything is so weird and different and new again i don't know i don't know exactly what it is um but i'm just noticing so many things in my body that are different how COVID has affected me, not like, like, yes, I talk actively about being a long hauler, but like in the long haul, (laughs) how has COVID affected me overall? What are my abilities now? What are my limits? Um, I just had the most incredible week teaching workshops and adjudicating at Florida State Thespians. I mean, it was one of the best weeks of my life. It was, it was incredible. Uh, you know, from performing as Gorgina Menzel to a, a theater full of, uh, thespians and having them chant gay with me, especially in light of the, the Florida's don't say gay bill that, and just seeing all of these kids just working and, creating art and, uh, coming together. It was, it it was just so fabulous and such an incredible week. It was an inspiring week, but I'm exhausted. I don't know. Like I've napped three days in a row. I don't, I'm not really a napper. I don't know if I'm still like energetically hungover from this week or just naps are what I need now. Like it's all very confusing for me. Um, and I know that if it's confusing for me, I, I'm not the only one that it's confusing for. So if you ever need to um, reach out or talk to someone about this, like I'm, I'm always here for, for those that, you know, make time for me and that make time to listen to this podcast. So um, know that you have a friend, know that you have a fellow artist that is exploring this and navigating this as well. Cause this is very interesting and a little difficult, I think. But we're getting through it. We're, we're going to figure out what this, um, I know this phrase is overused, but figuring out what this new normal is. Uh, 
but it's just very different and a little scary. But I guess if it's scary, then it's worth exploring, right? Anyway, (laughs) I'm very excited for you to listen to this episode featuring the legendary David Loud. David Loud occupies a unique place in Broadway history. In addition to his distinguished career as one of Broadway's most respected music directors and arrangers, he originated three Broadway roles as an actor, including his appearance in the original cast of Stephen Sondheim's legendary failure and cult classic, Merrily We Roll Along, directed by Hal Prince. In a career spanning several decades, he served as music director for the original Broadway productions of Ragtime, Curtains, Sondheim on Sondheim, The Visit, the Scottsboro Boys, A Class Act, The Look of Love, and Steel Pier, as well as the revivals of She Loves Me, Company, and Sweeney Todd. He also appeared alongside Zoe Caldwell and Audrey McDonald in Terrence McNally's Tony-winning play, Masterclass. We talk about his upcoming book, Facing the Music, which recounts his wildly entertaining and deeply poignant trek through the wilderness of his childhood and the edge-of-your-seat drama of a career on, in, under, and around Broadway for decades. He reveals his struggle against the ravages of Parkinson's and triumphs repeatedly. This memoir is also a remarkable love letter to music. Loud is the Ted Lasso of the theater business, ever the optimist, and is an inspiration to us all. I hope you enjoy this episode. David Loud, how are you? I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy to have you. How are you doing today? Well, mornings are hard sometimes for me. Sure. Okay. Um, The body isn't quite working the way I would like it to yet. And it's a process of medication and time and just getting back into um, feeling like myself. Yes. Which has been a challenge since being diagnosed with Parkinson's Uh, 14 years ago. Wow. So you've been you've been working and living with Parkinson's for fourteen years. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so I, I we might as well just jump right into it because mm-hmm. I think you know on on this podcast like it's it's all about truth and honesty in this industry. Mm-hmm. It's breaking down barriers and and getting to know the people that frequent it in a really um, honest light. So. Uh, you are a music director and supervisor and also performer. You have three Broadway credits to your name as a performer uh, and many more as a music director. You've worked with incredible, incredible divas and names such as <laughs> John Kander, Fred Ebb, Angela Lansbury, Cheetah Rivera, Roger Rees, Maren Maisie, may, she, may they both rest, um, Scott mm-hmm. Ellis, Jerry Bach, Sheldon Harnick, Garth Drabinsky and Barbara mm-hmm. Cook, to just name a few people who are up and comers and will one day have big careers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, you're a legend. How have you been able to sort of continue working with this challenge? Because we all have challenges, we all have things that get in our way, but particularly for you, what has been your experience? Well, it was a, it's been a long road for me. When I was first diagnosed with Parkinson's, my reaction was that I needed to keep it a secret. I didn't want mm. to tell anybody. I didn't want anybody to know. I thought it would damage my career. I thought people would view me as not being as reliable as I always was. Mm-hmm. 
and that um, that this career that I had worked on uh, and loved so much was was about to be taken away from me. Mm. Um, so I tried to hide it, and that didn't work really very well, and it made me very unhappy. And it became ridiculous after a bit because I was pretending that people didn't know and people were pretending that they didn't know and it was just awkward. And finally, I um, I would say I made the decision, but really uh, I think the, the disease made the decision that I couldn't hide it any longer. And I started to tell people and it was all, it was all fine. Mm -hmm. People were incredibly supportive and um, sensitive to the situation. And we found different ways to work together. Um, you know, I started to supervise instead of conduct. I, I did more arranging. And um, I found new ways to collaborate that didn't tax me as much. Uh, and eventually I found a new career, which is teaching rather than the eight, the eight a week hamster wheel of Broadway, and I couldn't be happier. So this is a podcast for theater multi-hyphenates. A multi-hyphenate, mm. what I say, is an artist who has multiple proficiencies, which cross-pollinates help flourish professional capabilities. Mm -hmm. So in layman's terms, I do a lot of shit. <laughs> and and multi-hyphenates yeah. do a lot of shit, and they sort of take on their own boss mentality of the industry in an industry where so many people think that they don't have control where they don't uh where they're not able to make their own decisions but mm. but you are a leading example of exactly that you uh you have you have a, a life happened to you and instead of waving the white flag you figured out the ways in which you can uh pivot and I think for many people in the industry, pivoting only happened when we were forced to. We, and then that opened doors to like new ways to communicate stories and talents. But now that we had this pandemic, I think it forced the majority of people to to pivot. So what were sort of your, when you were starting to pivot, how did you begin to discover these new aspects of yourself? How did you move into arranging? How did you find happiness and joy with that? Well, I have always been a multi-hyphenate, I think. Uh, I like that word. I'm going to say it many times, I think. It's a good word. <laughs> um, you know, I, I always found this niche for myself of the pianist who could say a few lines on stage or um you know i played the role of sasha the conductor of the musical within the musical of curtains um a show one show i did for two years uh, was a play called billy bishop goes to war a canadian play written for an actor who plays 18 parts and a pianist who is on stage with him the whole night, accompanying the show and playing other parts when necessary. Scott Ellis and I did that for two years all around the country. So I've never quite fit into only one category. I love doing lots of different things in the theater. I've always 
I've always wanted to do everything in the theater. I'd love to direct, I'd love to design, I'd love to do anything to to stay in the business of selling, telling stories on stage. Now, I don't mean to, um, I don't mean to have to bring in generational difference here, but mm. uh, in the time of, say, you know, when Merrily We Roll Along was on Broadway, right. which you were in, um, I think so many artists say that, well, back in my day, you picked one thing and you stuck to it. But that's not necessarily true because multi-hyphenating was popular around the 70s and 80s. So what do you what do you think is the main difference today between like creating your creating your own art back in the back back in the 80s uh, of this of this industry or versus today? Uh, what are you what are the main differences that you see? Well, one thing I'm not sure this this answers your question, but in the 80s, when, when we moved to New York to, to go into show business, we were not graduates of musical theater um, academies. And um, we, we, we learned by doing, and we learned from our friends, and we learned by imitating. And we went to auditions, and we figured out what worked and what didn't work. And um, we, were, we had to be sort of self-starters in that way. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of the young people who come to New York now are very well educated and their book is in shape and they know the history of musical theater because they've been taught it. And I'm not saying that that's easier or harder, but it's a very different way to engage with the business for the first time. And I think... In the 70s and 80s, you had to you had to look for whatever avenue might be open. And if it meant doing two or three things at once, um, then you might do that and eventually figure out that you're really a stage manager and not an actor, or maybe the producing is more more exciting to you. Um, I mean, people, 17-year-olds who are choosing to go to a musical theater conservatory are making a life decision very early in their lives mm-hmm. without really knowing what they're getting into. Mm-hmm. Because how could you? I think it's interesting, right? Because this this industry is based, I feel, more in the mentality of put on a costume, tell a story, get it done, <laughs> make the audience laugh and feel something, get out. And it's become... I think thanks to the BFA and MFA programs, I mean, I went through a BFA program that I loved, but I think what happens is it becomes a very sterile um, end game. I think basically people think now that if they went to a one of the leading musical theater schools, that that means that they are only an actor and they are surprised when they are finding themselves behind the table or they're finding themselves in a producer position or they're finding themselves in a, um, I have a story. How do I tell it? It's very interesting. I'm noticing that the, I feel like the overall mentality of I'll do anything to tell a story is going away and it's becoming more of a, um, I'll do anything to be an actor or I'll do anything to be, 
a producer or I'll be anything to do. I'll do anything to be a, a writer, not the cross pollination, which I think is the, the fundamental of this industry is just storytelling. The, um, that need to be in the theater, that, that yearning to, to be in a musical or to work on a musical or have that be your life is so powerful and it bites us at different times uh, in our lives. I mean, I knew from six years old what I wanted to be doing with my life, and I, I never wavered. Uh, I had to figure out exactly where I belonged in the business, uh, and that took me you know, a few tries to make sure it was going down the right road. But I, I knew I had to be here doing this, and... It's amazing how many people have that same story. And it usually starts with listening to their parents' record collection of old Broadway musicals and imagining what those shows must have been like in your in your head. I had that exact same situation. I mean, lucky for me, the first the first thing that I saw was Mary Poppins. That was the VHS yeah. my grandma taught me stage right from stage left in front of the v in front of the the movie playing and i was hooked but she also told me of her community theater days in douglaston queens at the jcc and they used to do shows like um forever fanny <laughs> so that they didn't have to pay the rights to funny Cooper. fanny oh, oh oh fanny bryce okay right yeah yeah, yeah. Yes. and um they also did like peddler on the stoop <laughs> which was Fiddler on the Roof. Yeah. And she, I think one, one Clever. thing she... Clever! Douglaston, the, Jew, the Jews of Douglaston. <laughs> um, so one day she told me, she was doing Bye Bye Birdie, and one day she, she told me or about... So her, Conrad. Yes, it's like so long. I think literally <laughs> you are correct in saying that it was so long Conrad. Um. <laughs> which is kind of amazing, but uh, they, she said that she had started a new medication and it made her very thin and frail. So at the end of May Peterson's number, she's down on her knees hitting the note and she can't get up under the mink coat. It's too heavy. And she said that the, what she made out of it and the audience laughing. She said it was one of the best moments of her life. And I remember being seven or eight years old hearing this mm. being like, that's what I want to do. Mm. So for you, uh, a school librarian and musical teacher instilled uh, you with the love of musical theater. Can you go into that story of how it all started? Uh, well, I had a wonderful music teacher, uh, named Don Rand, who um, was my piano teacher and also put on a musical at the school that I went to um, from fourth to eighth grade every year. And he wrote the musical and he staged the musical and he accompanied the musical and he directed the musical. And if there was a girl who reminded him of Cleopatra, then he made the musical about Cleopatra that year. Um, and he... He wrote above our heads mm. in that he he wrote what he wanted to write and he didn't care if it was kid friendly or um, you know it, 
he was never writing down to us. He wrote what mm -hmm. he wanted to write. And the, the shows were very sophisticated and had complicated rhymes. And I'm not sure we, we understood all the words that we were saying. Um, but it was a way to make theater that taught me how important it is to be yourself, to be just quirky you. Mm -hmm. and not trying to do what other people expected you to do or thought you should do. Don had no interest in doing that. Uh, he just wrote what he wanted to write, and we had a ball doing it because it was he was so talented. The, the school was in uh, Lake Placid, New York, on an organic farm, at a, uh, and the, the ethos of the school was very physical. It was academic. It was sort of high-power academics and had to go mountain climbing, and you had to be rugged and resourceful and engage with the land. And I didn't really want to be there. I wanted to be on Broadway with tap dancers and orchestras and Ethel Merman and Mary Martin. Mm -hmm. So I, in my mind, had to escape from, from this school. And I had a grandmother who lived in the city and she um, loved the theater. And I would save all my money and take the bus to New York and sleep on her couch for a week and see eight shows and we would discuss them and she took theater as seriously as I did and really made it possible for me to educate myself as to what this art form was. Um, I was so lucky in that way to have someone who could help me further that specific dream Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's it's sort of a classic anti-mame kind of relationship, that grandmother, grandson. Yes. I love you unconditionally and I'll do anything for you. And at the end of the week, go away. So we don't get tired of each other. <laughs> right, exactly. I have that with my family as well. I, I totally <laughs> understand. Uh, I want to go back to something that you said about um, how your teacher was writing, uh, was punching up and not punching down to you. Uh, mm. I, I grew up in a very, very similar setting mm. in, Coral, in Coral Springs, Florida, in Fort Lauderdale. And I, I, I want to give as many shout outs as I can to Cynthia O'Brien, who was my, um, uh, my the community theater director, you know, of a massive children's theater. Wow. Uh, in, in Coral Springs in Fort Lauderdale. And we basically every summer and during this school year as well, took over this national touring house in Fort Lauderdale and put on shows and, uh, mm. you know, but the shows that she chose, I was, I was 12 years old and I remember doing Dark of the Moon. <laughs> I remember doing... Um, uh, what uh, Rocky Horror when I was 13, The mm. Scarlet Pimpernel, shows yeah. that made so you're learning me, about the world, learning about the world, and learning about different cultures. Dark of the Moon, I was learning about Appalachian culture, and yeah. in Scarlet Pimpernel, I was learning about the French Revolution, and uh, in Rocky Horror, I was learning about queer culture. That's why I was able to come out when I was 13 because wow. I was, I was not, um, being 
I was not being hidden from what the world is like. I wasn't being forced to do Annie, which we love right. Annie. We love Annie. Don't get me wrong. Love Annie. But there are stories that can help a young person connect with themselves in the audience because they're so inspired that they want to go and do research. I mean, I remember going to the library and taking out books on the French Revolution because of Scarlet Pimpernel and imagining what that time was like and reading about it and and really investing in it and and it's so educational when i think theater educate theater educators punch up instead of punching down and trusting the kids with right. the material it's so much more um it's so much more fruitful i think mm. i feel like i learned what adults think <laughs> by reading the lyrics to Stephen Sondheim's musicals. You know, his, his specific way of elucidating a person's thought process, their reaction to a situation, what they want, what they need, how they get it, it was so interesting to me growing up because it, it seemed truthful and sophisticated and surprising just to hear some of his lyrics mm -hmm. that, that tell us the details of of what it means to be engaged in the world. And then you got to work with him. And then I got to work with him. Yes, I was incredibly lucky in that way, too. Tell us what it was like to really work with Stephen Sondheim. Well, in Merrily, I was uh, 18 when I was cast and 19 when we put on the show. And he was at, at the height of his creative powers. I mean, he had just written Company, Follies, A Little Night Music, Pacific Overtures, and Sweeney Todd. Merrily was the follow-up to Sweeney Todd, and my God, I mean, this was the best, the best material the business had ever seen. That was my opinion, going in anyway. I knew what I was getting into um, working with him. I, I mean, I already revered the work. And then to have him in rehearsal, sort of explaining why he had chosen this image and what we should do here and a better way to pronounce this word. It was overwhelming. I was so, well, I was nervous around him the way everybody is, but I also, I knew that I needed to pay attention and learn as much as I could because this opportunity might very well not, never repeat itself. It was a great experience in that way. Um, he was unfailingly kind to me and to all of us. Uh, he and Hal and Paul treated us like professionals, which we weren't really. Mm -hmm. We were we, we had a lot of energy, but we had no experience. Uh, but they treated us they treated us beautifully in that show, and for me, it was all about watching them grapple with you know a troubled show a flawed show watching them try to fix it watching them fail watching them succeed mm -hmm. watching them keep trying and the fact that it turned out sort of unsuccessfully at the time i don't think diminished the the amount of information that I got from working with them and watching them. Um, and if anything, to see your heroes fail is to learn something really 
important at the beginning of, of someone's career, which is that anybody can have a bomb. Anybody Look, can, can flop. And to start out your career with a monumental flop the way I did, boy, do I appreciate a show that, that goes well and hits now. Um, having been through the other. I mean, look at Mel Brooks, right? Mel Brooks, History of the World, Part One, Young Frankenstein, uh, you know, uh, Blazing Saddles. But then there's the silent movie. And then there's the to be or not to be. The, sh the movies that he created that weren't hits at all, but are still brilliant and flawed, but brilliant. And all of the greats have flops and uh I, I i love talking about failure failure is a um common theme that shows up in my interviews and on this podcast because mm -hmm. i do think you have to embrace failure like you do success you have to um befriend it you have to mm -hmm. enjoy it even because those i think there are more lessons in the failure than there are in the successes well, yeah, sometimes you have to learn the hard way how, how things aren't going to work or what may have been a great idea but didn't quite make it on stage or all those things that go wrong in a show. How does it feel to be a part of a show that back then might have been a flop and a failure but has sort of garnered this um, cult classic vibe of fandom? I mean that show is loved and there are people that i mean i will ask what is your favorite musical and people will say merrily we roll along and i and i sort of go well where were you <laughs> where were you I in mean, 1981 exactly exactly not born yet <laughs> but it's sort of that fascinating thing of listening to the cast album and hearing the stories and being taken to that place of like what was it like what was it like seeing that show in you know at the it was at the alvin right with the alvin yeah it was at the alvin it was it was one of the ugliest shows ever put on stage in my opinion <laughs> the set was incomprehensible it looked like bleachers and lockers and it never it never helped the story go backwards in any way right the costumes had been designed to do that to take us backwards in time but Hal's decision to to jettison the original costume design and put us in T-shirts with our names on them uh, took that away. Uh, there were there were ugly projections in the back. The T-shirts looked so cheap you couldn't believe what you were seeing. <laughs> and like one of the first first stunts of the show is as written, is that the kids who are graduating at the beginning of the story take off the graduation robes and turn into Hollywood sophisticates, mm -hmm. uh, celebrating Franklin Shepard's new movie. And it should happen in the twinkle of an eye. Mm -hmm. We took off our graduation robes and we were wearing cheap, ugly t-shirts. We So we looked... 18, which is what we were, pretending to be older people. And we were just doomed. We were doomed what do you think that, 
what do you think the disconnect was? Like, why do you think someone just didn't go, hey, that's the issue? Well, it's one of the issues right there. Like, in other Hal Prince shows and Sondheim shows, those problems right. are nipped in the bud. Those are... Yes. So why in Merrily um, w- weren't those things taken care of? I couldn't tell you. And actually, I've never heard anybody else... Uh, describe that what I just described as the problem of Merrily. Yeah. Um, the, the one of the things in Hal's mind I know going into the project was, and this has happened to all of us, I'm sure. You go to a high school production of, you know, Finian's Rainbow, and for some reason it turns out to be the best thing you ever saw. Yeah. Because the kids were enthusiastic and everything went right and it's the kind of unexpected experience with a young cast that i think he was trying to recreate on broadway mm-hmm. um it's it's interesting sometimes when we see those high school shows it is the best thing we've ever seen just because of a random choice that was made that no yes. one else had ever seen like um next week i'm going to judge at florida state thespians it's one of my favorite things to do i grew up participating and now i'm an adjudicator and workshop teacher there and one of the years um was one of the main stage shows was sideshow and Mm. i've never been a huge sideshow fan it's not one of my favorite musicals in the world but what did they do it was these two twin sister they were they were graduating one was like going to michigan and one was going to ccm and they and the teacher cast them as daisy and violet and it was like it was they were twins and it was the last time they were ever going to perform on stage together in their youth and so it raised the stakes it was visually you know compelling and it was just they had the audience sort of leaning forward and it made me love the show because of that one choice. How great. How you great. Know? I saw twins auditioning for for uh conservatory I, I think it was two years ago, and I, I wanted to cast them and do the boys from Syracuse immediately. Oh, that's amazing. Uh, that is that is amazing. Uh, I, I, it didn't work out, but it, it, the idea made me excited. That is it. What, what other casting choices have you seen in the world that has excited you? Things like that are fun. And actually, the teacher uh, that I mentioned to you before, Don Rand, mm-hmm. he did um, his production of Cinderella involved a set of twins mm. that were students at the school. And there was Katie and Noni, and Katie was playing downtrodden Cinderella in her rags and dirty face, and her hair was all a mess. And the fairy godmother did her little spell, and Katie went behind a tree and came out with a beautiful dress and beautiful hair, and she was clean. And you know, we all knew that it was Noni, but we suspended our disbelief the way you do in the theater, and. It was a magical transformation. That is brilliant. I thought it was brilliant at the time, certainly. <laughs> oh, that's incredible because that's like so gay. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like 
that's mad that's 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 drag you know <laughs> there was um one of my favorite drag performances that i'd ever seen was um alexis michelle what uh who is on season eight i believe of drag race she's a new york queen and she uh for this competition that was produced and organized by Paige turner who's my favorite drag queen in hell's kitchen um she uh it was this big like drag queen competition and alexis was in it before she was on drag race and it was broadway week and each of the performers had to do a broadway specific number and she comes on stage in rags and <laughs> a mask and is doing the witch's rap Oh. And then at the end of the witch's rap, you hear a clock chime, and then you hear do 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 do, and she's spinning, and she takes off the flips off the mask while she's spinning. The rags are inverted, and mm. she is left in this ball gown, full face, full beat in a lace front wig, Amazing. and then she lip syncs to "Gorgeous" from the Apple Tree. <laughs> It wow. was so iconic. I mean, and I was the front row for it. And I was just <laughs> like, if ever I questioned my homosexuality, tonight it was confirmed. Well, that's just good theater. It's just good theater. And you see and, something and, transform on stage like that. That's so exciting. It's also what, you know, that casting choice with the twins. That's also like, so. I talk a lot about socially responsible theater. And socially responsible theater can, you know, often be like, making sure that artists are paid well and that, you know, uh, marginalized artists stories are being told, you know, but also socially responsible theater is like, what does the community need? And what does, what does like the body of students that are in the show, mm -hmm. uh, what do they need from the, from that art? And if there's two twins and one <laughs> female lead, Right. <laughs> you know, how do you get creative? And I think that's also, it's not only great theater, it's also socially responsible artistry. That's terrific. Um, so, okay. So speaking of multi-hyphenating, because this is, you know, a podcast for multi-hyphenates, you're, you're on top of educator and, and music director and supervisor and all of these wonderful things. You also have a book. We're now adding author to your hyphen. Yes. Uh, for the last six and a half years, I've been writing this book. Uh, it's called Facing the Music. Mm -hmm. And it's a memoir of my time conducting Broadway shows and working on professional theater. Um, as a music director of a Broadway show, you are in a unique spot to, to see the work and the world and the elements that make a show come together or not. Um, uh, the, the podium for a Broadway musical is, a, is an extraordinary place to see the show from. You've got the cast and the stage up in front of you. You've got the musicians packed into the pit below you. You've got the audience behind you and you can feel them on your neck. And your energy goes in those three directions. And it's, it's a thrilling intersection of information and decisions that have to be made and um, the uh, 
the sort of triple um, vortex of of the show is swirling around you. You are the heartbeat of the musical. Yeah, and it's a it's a powerful, privileged, lovely place to to be doing a show. Um, and I I loved that. Um, I forget what the question was. No, I, and <laughs> Hey, that's when, you know, you're passionate about something. And you forget what the question was. I just wanted to know what that experience was, but now I want to talk, just, you know, you, you wrote it for six and a half years, but oh, you're talking, that's right, the book. <laughs> you're, you're talking about, you know, what you, what you were doing and it's, you know, I'm sure the experiences varied from ragtime to, you know, St steel pier. You know, sure. to the Scottsboro Boys. Those are all very, very different, very different shows. And uh, I want to know, you know, for those that are listening that are maybe like, wow, I think, I think music supervision and, and musical direction might be something that I want to discover. How do you become a music director? How did you end up in these rooms? Uh, was it just someone called you up? Was there an interview process? What do young artists need to know about this profession that can help them follow in your footsteps? Well, it's a great question. And there's no easy way to, to answer it and become, and there's no easy way to, you can't go audition to be a music director. Or right. Very rarely can you. Uh, the way I became one was once I figured out that that's actually what I wanted to be, which is something that happened while I was doing Marilyn B. Rolling Long. Um, the, the role, the way that I approached it was I thought, well, I have got to be an assistant music director first. And so I went and I did summer stock as an assistant music director. And um, we did 12 shows in 12 weeks and they, with no days off for the whole summer. And they asked me to come back as the music director the next summer. And I thought, well, I'm so broke and poor after spending a summer doing summer stock. How could I come back and do another summer? But I thought, but that'll be another 12 scores that I would have learned. Mm. Uh, and I would come back as a music director. I'd get experience that way. So I chose another summer of poverty and you know, all of a sudden I had 24 scores that I knew and I had, I knew how the vocal arrangements were constructed. I knew how the dance music was routined. Mm. I saw how they moved from dialogue to song to dance. And it was a great education. Uh, even though most of the productions that the Surf Light Summer Theater were pretty bad, every now and then, you know, things would come together and the right actress would land in the right roles and We'd have a good week. Mm. Um, I actually loved doing that kind of theater. Of course, where it's you just get as you get whatever you can up on the stage, and yes. then for the rest of the week, you kind of remind yourself, "Oh, if I had ten minutes of rehearsal, I would fix these sixteen things." Mm -hmm. But I probably won't get to do that <laughs> next time. Next time, yeah. That's amazing. So what are you the most excited for about getting this book out into the world? Well, I have collected some very funny and very interesting and very bizarre stories over the, over my time on Broadway. And it was a, 
the initial impulse for the book was to share some of those stories. I mean, um, the way Masterclass was put together, um, getting to watch, you know, a great classical actress shape mm. a performance the way I got to with Zoe Caldwell. Um, working on Ragtime, watching um, Garth Drabinsky spend millions and millions of dollars to make that show huge and powerful and rich. I mean, we knew that it couldn't, we could never support itself financially on, on Broadway. It was so lavishly done. But boy, it was fun to be in all that money mm -hmm. <laughs> for once. You know, working with Sondheim, uh, the several times that I got to work with him on Merrily and then on the Company Revival and then on the Sweeney Todd Revival mm -hmm. and on Sondheim on Sondheim. What a privilege that was. Um, and uh, so I have these fun, shiny theater stories and I started to write those down and it didn't seem like I could go much further without then actually writing about some of the people who got me there. So I started writing about my teachers and um, what, what sort of, what it takes to germinate that kind of desire that it, that you need to, to survive in the business. And you've, you've really got to want to be here. Oh yeah. It's so hard and it's so competitive and it's so awful at times that you have to really be able to seize the moments of joy and, and make sure that it's all worth it still. What do they say? Uh, success is when opportunity meets preparedness. Absolutely true. And that's the, I think the core of this industry is that everyone will get their chance and their chance might not even be, uh, might not even be, they might not even be aware. It might not even be obvious of you that never that's know their when, chance. When you're auditioning, you never know that's when you're true. auditioning. You never know who you're talking to. Yeah. And I I think hearing in this book, I think there's going to be so many lessons about how the different aspects of this industry. Because mm. I say all the time is that this industry looks so different in so many different ways on a day-to-day -day basis from a career from a from a proficiency to proficiency basis, my experience as a photographer and a performer and a writer is different than your experience as a music director and a performer and a writer. It's two very separate careers in the same industry. And so I think what young artists need to do is they need to read books like yours and they need to pick and choose from the experiences and go, I experienced something like that. I didn't know that that was the lesson or mm. I've never run into that. And I hope one day I get to. So I'm very excited for your book to, to be out there. Can you tell us the details? When is it getting released? Who's publishing it? It's being published by Regan Arts, R-E-G-A-N, which is a subdivision of Simon & Schuster. It's called Facing the Music. And it comes out on Stephen Sondheim's birthday which is March 22nd, which is right around the corner. Um, and you can order it on Amazon now. 
uh, and various, I think Barnes and Noble is up and a couple other places. Uh, you talk about those books that we read when we were kids and the book that I read that, that lit a flame within me is, it's called Act One by Moss Hart. Love it. Uh, it was a, I read it and then I read it again and then I pretty much read it every year since then. I now teach it. I make all my students read it. It's a great book. Um, and some of them are mystified by it and others mm-hmm. uh, see it the way I do, which is that it contains a universe of lessons and situations that illuminate the human race and and what it means to be in the theater. Um, and I loved writing in that genre of these are the things that that make me, you know, joyful in the business and the stories that have taught me the 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 most in the in the um, in the in the humanity of the profession because we have to live with each other in this mm-hmm. business. It's not just going to work. It's it's your life. You know? Mm-hmm. I know for me, certainly, my colleagues are my friends. Same here. And my family. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, David, you have been absolutely amazing to have. Um, I could talk to you. What a delight. What a delight. You're so smart. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Well, you heard it here, folks. I am smart. (laughs) That's something I haven't heard in a very long time. It felt very good. Thank you to David Loud for joining me on Dear Multi-Hyphenate, and thank you to the Broadway Podcast Network, and again, thank you for listening. If you liked this episode and you liked Dear Multi-Hyphenate, please rate, comment, subscribe, follow, do all that good stuff, and please check out David Loud's Facing the Music, which is in stores now. I hope everyone has an inspired day, and please be in touch. Bye! Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.